0: Chapter Seventeen of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Desiree U. Angeles. Chapter Seventeen. Our wind held so fair and steady at northeast that on the ninth day we sighted porto santo in the madeiras and two days later the canaries so persuaded was our captain of a very good passage and so earnest to give the spaniards no inkling of our purpose that he would not touch for water but held on without once dropping anchor or striking sail till the 35th day in spite of the terrible shock my sudden meeting with harry had given to my spirits and in spite of my despair at being condemned to face my shame and sorrow for i knew not how many months i could not but feel a calm grow over me as we proceeded none can tell save he who has tried it what it is to a perturbed spirit to sail on day after day over those sunny seas with all the magic of the west before less and less i brooded over the old life and more and more on the glory of the new till as frank had said the past seemed to grow small and a faint hope arose in me that my crime was not too great for pardon Seeing that I knew how hard my brother would try to forgive, I employed myself in studying navigation and the Spaniard hung with Frank, nor were ship duties wanting, for it was ever our captain's way to have the gentleman tally on a rope as well as the meanest mariner when need was. He hated nothing so much as idleness, and those who had no work had always to find play, which he himself was not slow in furnishing i know nothing he used to say that breeds discontent and faint hearts like the union of these two dullness and idleness so with games and music and rummaging and cleaning arms our spirits were kept up when they were like to sing for want of work frank was very earnest about this on our present voyage for as we neared the indies the hands being young began to frighten themselves with tales of the great strength and richness of the Indian cities, until it had not been for frank's care in stopping and preventing such idle talk with other inducements. They would have come to think Nombre de Dios as big as London and as strong as Berwick. Nor were we allowed to lose sight of the godly purpose of our enterprise. Prayers were ordered every night and morning which our captain read very earnestly, never forgetting a prayer to God for the Queen's Majesty, her most honorable counsel in the speedy making of our voyage, the same having a very good effect, for the half, at least, of the crew were as good prudence as himself. Thus it was in a very hopeful and godly state that on the evening of the 35th day we saw the Isle of Guadalupe towering on the horizon at a priceless jewel in the setting sun. With all our music and many a gay flourish of our trumpets, we saluted it. And that night, as we lay a hull, our musicians gave us a double portion of melody. With the first morning light, we ran in and anchored off a little rocky island, three leagues off Dominica, where we lay three days to refresh our men and here we landed and wandered at will to taste for the first time the surpassing loveliness of the tropics how shall i tell of those first days in the indies my pen seems a dumb dead thing when i think of it much as i had thought and dreamed and read of them this waking the seeing was far beyond all on either hand the heights of guadalupe and dominica towered serenely out of their soft beds of lustrous green the glittering waters between were studded with island gems ablaze with every bright hue which god has made that we may taste the glory which is to come all about us was the hum of bright flies the sparkle of feather and gorgeous flowers and the rustle of the scented air through the crowded canes as it passed on to wave with dreamy motion the heavy crowns of the slender pounds and over all with faint and soothing voice there came in through the dense growth of vine and brake, the deep toned booming of the surf such is the pale shadow that i have power to paint of the banquet on which our souls feasted as we lay in the deserted huts which the indians who came there to fish had built so rich and heavenly was that world that i could not wonder how men were led on to think that a little farther only a little farther must be a land where golden gems could be as the sand and pebbles were nay, where beyond some glittering Hill they would see the open gates of paradise. Not only by the memory of all that beauty does the time live in my mind, but also because it was here I first had real speech with my wrong brother. As we lay in those dryads' bowers, our sorrow seemed so far away and little in this new world, so dim beside its dazzling glory. That it was for a time half forgotten amidst the thousand new things that crowded our thoughts, like to sillylina we lay, as Mr. Oxenham had said, in the arms of Lady Nature, and all that was sad melted in the glow of her luxuriant life. We had no spirit for the revels of our comrades for chasing the bright-hued birds or plucking the gleaming flowers we were both happier to lie looking over the sea where our dainty ships rocked and dreamily talk over harry's italianate nations that rose unbidden here being to me now of undreamed of interest since my old faith was gone they were a subject we could talk on more as we used to do surely I remember him saying, surely that Italian friar was right who told me that the soul was not in the body. Can you not feel, Jasper, how great a thing it is? Can you not feel how there is something that binds you like a brother to all this music of birds and leaf and air and sea? What can it be but the great soul of the universe? That is it, and the friar was right it is a great soul which is not in our bodies rather our bodies in the soul the soul that is yours and mine and hers and god's so would our speech always come back to our sorrow and part of us again yet were we too drunken with the western wine to feel the past too deeply thus then once or twice during our stay there we had speech of these things and I began to hope still more, that some day we might be the same again together, and moreover to feel that I was beginning to understand what it was he thought of the great universal secret. On the third day after our coming to the island, we sailed again, greatly refreshed, and in two days more we had sight of the era firm, being the highland above Santa Marta, but came not near the shore, that we might not be seen. So without sight of Cartagena, we passed on, till on the 12th of July we dropped anchor off the haven whither we were bound. It was a spot our captain had noted on his voyage the last year, not only as being sheltered by two high points from the winds and a very commodious harbor, but also because no Spaniard had any dwelling between this place and Santiago de Tolu. On the one hand, and Nombre de Dios on the other, the nearest being at least thirty five leagues distant. Moreover, there was an abundance of food there, both fish in the sea and fowls in the woods around, the most plentiful being certain birds like to our pheasants, which the Spaniards in those regions call guans and curacaos. It was by reason of the great store of these delicate fowls that our captain named the place Port Pheasant. It must be remembered we had our three pinuses to set up, for in them we were to make our attack. It was most necessary then to have a hidden place for this work, and it was not a little his knowledge of this secret haven that gave our captain his great hopes of success. He judged no one knew it but himself and those who had been with him in his previous voyage. Being thus perfectly secure, Frank rowed in to see how best to bring the ships to moorings there, and I went in a boat. No place could have been better fitted to our purpose. The headlands were but half a cable's length apart, and so overhung with a dense growth of brakes and trees all strange to me that ill could be seen beyond save the climbing hills on the mainland but as soon as we rode in i could see what a paradise it was before us opened a rounded haven from eight to ten cables length every way the waves died languidly away towards the shore in ever lessening rifles as though hushed by the surpassing beauty of the place where with loving whispers they lapped the golden beach they reflected with a picture more dazzling than my eyes had ever seen heaped up in wild profusion was a tangled mass of every hue of green that closed to the water's edge the gently swelling hills wherever the rocks could find a place to peep their own rich color was almost hidden by hanging bunches of scarlet flowers. Huge tree trunks I could get a glimpse of here and there, with great sinews of rugged bark that stood boldly out from them, and were lost in the glowing brakes which covered the ground. In the branches fluttered birds that mocked the radiance of the flowers, while on every point the crest and bronze hued facants plumbed themselves, and screamed defiance, one against the other. Lost to all else but this fairy land, I was hardly plunged, as it were, into some delicious dream when I was rudely awakened. First rowing, lads, said Frank suddenly, in quick hushed tones, look, what's yonder? His keen eye was the first to see it. I looked where he pointed and in a moment my paradise was stumbled to earth away in the trees rose a thin blue cloud of smoke there was no mistaking it the hand of man must be there whose was it was what we asked ourselves with melancholy foreboding our captain though as disappointed as any of us to see a cuckoo in his nest seemed nothing daunted Rowing back quickly to the ships, he ordered out our other boat and, manning, both to their full holding, not forgetting muskets, bows, and pikes, returned speedily to land. No sooner were we ashore than we could see many traces of men having been there very lately. There were black spots, where fires had been, and marks of fresh clearing in the brakes. Setting ourselves in order, we cautiously went forward along a track that seemed to lead to the fire, Frank leading the way in spite of all our efforts to dissuade him. We had not gone far before we came to a tree in the midst of the track, so great that four men at full stretch could not have girdled it about. I saw Frank stop suddenly and look up on the trunk. Ah! Jack Garrett, Jack Garrett, he said. What game is this you have been coursing with my hounds? I followed his eyes and saw a leaden plate nailed to the tree, on which were graven these words. Captain Tray, if you fortune to come to this point, make haste away. for the Spaniards which you had with you here the last year have berayed this place and taken away all that you left here. I depart from hence this present seventh of July, fifteen seventy two. Your very loving friend, John Garrett. My thanks, Jack Garrett, for your kindly warning, cried Frank. A true Plymouth man are you, though so you did whistle away some of my best hounds. See what comes, he continued, turning to me, of sparing these false Spaniards' lives. It is enough to make a man cut the throat of every person. He takes a thing. By God's help, I will never do whatever it costs me. May they have their reward for their treachery, though. My God's mercy, we are too well furnished to be hurt by the loss of any gear they stole. Where will you go now, then? I asked. No whither, my lad, said he. Here I purpose to set up my pinnaces, and here I will do it. Spaniards are not here now, and if they keep away but two days, I shall order things so that, by God's help, they shall rue their coming, if that is their mind. He was very cheerful and rested with it all, and made us so too, yet I know he was sorely tired by his frequent speaking of God's name, which was always his way at times when he felt need of all his courage, as indeed he did now. For though we found the place deserted, the fire we had seen being but the remains of Garrett's work, left perhaps as a signal for us to be on our guard, yet there was no telling when the Spaniards would be down on us. No time, therefore, was lost in carrying out our captain's resolve. Harry, having, as I have said, a good knowledge of such matters, speedily marked out a piece of land about 3 quarters of an acre in extent of pentagonal form with one side touching the shore the whole crew then started cheerily to clear this hauling the trees as they were felled with bullies and hossers in such wise as to make a rampant all around a lookout boat being dispatched meanwhile to one of the points to watch for any disturbances All that day we labored at our fort, and most of the night too. Yet next morning, much still remained to be done when we saw our lookout boat rowing hard toward us. Sail ho! shouted the steersman. As soon as he was in hail, three sail-bearing hard down on us. Blister the fool's tongue, said Frank beneath his breath as he stood at my side and saw something like alarm in the younger mariner's faces but he sang out cheerily good news good news my lads now we will trap them here and never a breath of our coming shall reach nombre de dios the man reported the three sail as well as he could tell a bark about the swan's size a caravel, and a smaller craft all set to work cheerily to carry out frank's order for we were in excellent heart again to see that our captain Thought only of offence, some pieces of ordnance were removed from the ships to be set by Harry and Mr. Oxenham in the best positions they could find for the defence of our fort. The ships were then warped over to the entrance of the haven where they were moored on either side, hand close under the rocks, so that they could not be seen by a ship till she was well within each had hold fast to the opposite point that they might be warped across the mouth as soon as the enemy had passed in all fires were extinguished and the small gunners and bowmen who were ashore at the fort were well concealed so we lay waiting in great anxiety for what was to come mr oxenham and harry by pouring out a fire of jests and comfortable speeches kept up the youngsters' spirits as well as might be Though I think by their looks there was many a heart thumping hard, when we saw through the bushes a large Spanish shallop rowing in towards our haven. As the shallop came on, a bark of some fifty tons in a caravel of Seville build, as Mr. Oxenham told us, hove to right opposite our entrance. The shallop came as far as between the points and then after stopping, as though to discover the place thoroughly, rowed back to the ships. It was impossible to tell whether they had seen us or not, so seeing what our aim was, we could but rejoice when we saw them all make sail and stand in. On they came, a pretty sight to see, swaggering and most gallantly, at last, they were all inside, in full view of our ships, which yet did not move an inch. Something must be wrong," whispered Mr. Oxenham to me. "Why the devil does not warp across, or at least give them a shot?" Suddenly, there was a loud flourish of trumpets on board the Admiral, and the flag of Saint George was thrown up, but still she did not stir her whole fast must have dragged said mr oxenham i fear we are undone a puff of smoke leaped forth from the strange bark and we looked to see the admiral struck the boom of the shot rolled across the still waters waking strange echoes in that landlocked bay and setting the guans a-screaming, their ear-piercing cry. Ere the sounds died away a trumpet brayed answer to our admiral, and we saw the Red Cross flutter out from the stranger's top. At first we thought it must be some treacherous Spanish stratagem. But all our fears were at rest, when as our ships answered the stranger's salute, we saw a boat put out from the bark and go abroad the admiral. Our fears and pains were all wasted, for she proved to be a bark from the Isle of Wight belonging to St. Edward Horse, the governor, Wilden Horsey, so well known to us not only for the mad stories of his ruffling youth and his piracies in the narrow seas during the old days, but also for the excellent disposition he made for the defense of the island, and above all for his notable services when he rode at the head of Clinton's Course during the late rising in the north. He was a great gentleman now and high in the Queen's service, yet he could not wholly give up his old ways, and had fitted out this present ship under Captain Rance to try what popish prizes he could pick up on the high seas or amongst the Indies. He had made his voyage so far as to take a shallop off Cape Blanco and what was better, a caravel carrying avisos to nombre de Dios. He was thus able, when he heard our purpose to confirm us from the papers he had seized, that as yet the Spaniards had no knowledge of our coming. So very welcome and favorable for our purpose did this seem that Captain Rance was desirous to concert us. In our venture, nothing could have been more to the minds of most of us than this, seeing he had thirty good and well-armed men with him, but Frank was ill-pleased with it, and would gladly have gone forward alone, save that he thought it better to put a good face on a bad matter and consent, seeing how Captain Rance, if he were evilly disposed might bring all our voyage to naught. So they were received upon conditions which I, being a scholar, was appointed to draw, whereof having a copy I will set it forth, that man in like case hereafter may see how the prince of navigators ordered these things, since happy quarrels have many times arisen between captains who have sailed in concert, by reason of their not doing things orderly at the outset. After the ancient usages of the sea. As I sat in our council chamber, which had for its walls the rugged buttresses of one of those huge trees of which I have spoken, and for roof the vast spread of its branches, alive with screaming parrots, I could not but muse on dull eyed lawyers far away in their dingy temple, nor as I wrote the dry note which contrasted so strangely with the splendor of our audacious project could i but marvel over the might of our great queen's peace which in such humble shape could reach even here to aid her loving subjects in ordering the chivalrous brotherhood by which he hoped to add such glory to her name and thus i wrote the words as frank spoke them plain and clear that none might have to hunt for sense in a forest of sounds I, Francis Drake, general of the fleet appointed for these seas, to with the pasha of seventy tons and forty-seven men, and the swan of twenty-five tons and twenty-six men, together with three pinuses and men, have consorted, covenanted, and agreed, and by these presents do concert, covenant, and agree, with James Rance of the lion. Fifty tons and thirty men, belonging to, and being under the flag of the Honorable Sir Edward Horsey, Knight, together with a certain caravel to be hereafter measured, and a shallop, her prizes and concerts, to have, possess, enjoy, and be partaker with me and my fleet, and I with them, of all such lawful prize or prizes as shall be taken by me or them or any of us jointly or severally, in sight or out of sight, ton for ton and man for man, from this present thirteenth day of July 1572, till such time as we mutually determine the conditions contained herein. So it was signed, sealed, and delivered, and all being settled, we labored together harmoniously, the carpenters at setting up the pinnaces, the rest by spells at completing the fort, exercising in our weapons, the gathering of victuals, and many pastimes which our captain devised. End of chapter seventeen. Recording by Desiree U. E. Angelis.